in elementary and uh, early middle school, I played in the band. I didn't choose the band. I think they made us all play in the band. So really, I don't remember it as an option. You will all play an instrument. And I played the trombone. Not because I chose, but because my older brother had played the trombone. The family owned a trombone. So it was given to me, you will play the trombone. So I did for a few years. And honestly, I was not a very good musician. So no fear that you'll ever see me on up here on Sunday morning playing the trombone in the band. That will not happen in my lifetime. So I wasn't great at playing, but in time, not only did we have to play, but we also had to march. So apparently you march and play at the same time. And apparently good bands march and play and stay in step with one another. So you're supposed to all be in unison together. But for me, playing was hard enough much less marching and playing, and then trying to keep in step with others really didn't go so well. At any given time, any culture is working to conform people to stay in step together, to walk the same, to believe the same things, to share the same values. And the challenge for the Christian is to regularly be trying to discern on this topic, in this issue, in this way, can I be a faithful Christian and walk in step with culture here? Or in this issue or on this topic, must I walk helpfully out of step from culture as a part of that? Because so often the call for the Christian is to not be in step, but to be out of step, but, but also to be out of step in a helpful way, meaning by the way that we live, empowered by the grace of God, it would be helpful in that it holds out a different vision. In fact, the life of the kingdom of Jesus that can be compelling and attractive, even if it is out of step from our society. And this morning in our passage, we'll see some of these areas where as Christians, if we seek to live in the kingdom of Jesus, we will be out of step. So if you have a Bible, turn to the gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 19. Today we're in Matthew 19, starting in verse 13, and you can find it in the Bibles near you on page 824. Page 824. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible so you can see the text in front of you uh, or open up a Bible app. Uh, if you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So in chapter 19, the smaller numbers, the verse numbers, we'll start in verse 13. We'll work our way through until verse 30. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. Uh, there's a table at the back, a stack of Bibles there. It says free Bibles. Please grab one of those following the service and take it with you today as our gift. So we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 19, beginning in verse 13. Then children were brought to him, to Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? 
Jesus said to him, If you be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples heard this. They were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. But Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will have followed you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This morning in our passage, we see this emphasis. Embrace the countercultural way of Jesus' kingdom. Embrace the countercultural way of Jesus' kingdom. And we'll see in our four parts in our passage. So first, we'll see receiving the kingdom. Second, refusing the kingdom. Third, entering the kingdom. And then fourth, experiencing the kingdom. So first, we see receiving the kingdom in verses 13 through 15. We see that children were being brought to Jesus. It seems parents were bringing children to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and he might pray for them and bless them. This was a common practice in that day that people would bring children to rabbis, to uh, Jewish teachers, and Jesus was considered in that category at this time. So this was not unusual for parents to bring their children that Jesus might bless them, but Jesus' disciples rebuked them. They rebuked the parents, it seems, and, and try to scatter the kids, go away. In the culture of that day, children were not viewed in the same way that we view children today. At that time, the elderly were held in, in high esteem, Children were valued, but especially at a younger age, were, were encouraged to, to be on the periphery, to kind of stay out of the way, be, be certainly seen and not heard. So it's as if the disciples were saying, like, look, our, our teacher is important. His ministry is valuable. We want to have a respectable ministry. And to have a respectable ministry, you, you can't have children all around him. So let's get the children away. But notice Jesus corrects them, verse 14. He says, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus teaches a very important lesson here. He's saying his kingdom belongs to, his kingdom is received by such as those children. And he didn't say the kingdom of heaven belongs to these two children. Jesus is not saying that by their very nature, children are automatically in the kingdom. That's not what he's saying, but to those who are like these children, such as these children, he says. What does Jesus mean? Seeing that in order to receive his kingdom, one must become childlike. We should see that Jesus is saying that he has a very real kingdom and that people are not automatically in this kingdom. One must receive it. One must enter it. 
And in order to enter, in order to receive, one must become childlike. And in particular, he's speaking of childlike humility and childlike faith. He says, receive it, have this humility and childlike faith. We don't want to misunderstand. Jesus is not saying that by becoming childlike, we then earn our way into his kingdom. No, his kingdom cannot be earned. That's why it must be received as a gift. And the only one who will receive it are those who are willing to admit they need the gift, willing to admit they need a Savior and will receive it by faith. But this teaching to become like a child is hard. And who is this hard for? The self-reliant, the proud, the powerful. So in fact, this is hard for many, if not most. And it's not surprising that it's hard in greater Boston. For who's more powerful, self-reliant, perhaps even proud than we are? So I wonder if you've ever personally turned to Christ with childlike faith. So we see Jesus teaching here. In addition to his words, we also see Jesus, although it's not the main thrust of the passage, that Jesus shows great love for children. We see it throughout his ministry. And so here Jesus says, let the children come to me. Don't hinder the children. Jesus loves and welcomes children. And if we're followers of Jesus, we should love and welcome children just as he does. So as individuals, we want to have hearts of love and compassion for children and for youth. For the least, the smallest, the weakest, for all children, those who are born and unborn, we care for them and we want to do all that we can to welcome them and to never hinder them from coming to Jesus. And as a church family, we want to love children together. We want to care for and teach them, serve them, that they might know and follow Christ. And we want to make sure that we would do nothing to hinder children from coming to him. So friend, if this is your church, the children in this church are also your children. So in Christ, the children, the youth of this church are, are cousins to you. You are cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents to these children in our church. We all have an opportunity, responsibility for those that God brings to our church. So what are some things that you could do just on a, on a weekly basis and engaging with, interacting with the children of our church? Here are a few just really simple things. One, I would encourage you to, when you see children, seek to speak to them, not just to their parents. And when possible, kind of get down on eye level and tell them hi. Also, as you speak to them, try to learn and remember their names. There's a good number of children in our church, particularly at the nine o'clock service. I'm not asking, learn them all. If you just learn one or two, and then if you call them by that name the next time you see them, you'll see their eyes light up that this person knows my name. When you see them each week, tell them you're glad that they're here. If you hear them singing on Sunday morning, say, Wow, you did a great job singing today. And those very small steps are significant. As the kids get a little older, and perhaps you're getting to know one or two, and, and they tell you about something come up, coming up in their life, maybe an event, a recital, a game they're playing in, 
if possible, try to remember that and then ask them about it the next Sunday. And how did your piano recital go? Because the fact is, you have more influence in their lives than you might imagine. Sure, I remember when you were a kid, very quickly, parents are uncool. Even cool parents, by the very nature of being parents, are rendered uncool by their own children. And if you're not the parents, you automatically have some cool points to your name. And so think about it this way. There are children in this church where you can add to their lives as you invest in and love them and show interest in them. And particularly some of you who are, who are young adults, students, in particular, they look to you, they watch you, whether you know it or not. And so if you pay attention to them, you say, how did your game go? Or even down the road, if you get to know them even better, if you even took some time to go to their recital, go to their event, it profoundly impacts their lives. For our kids, they grew up here. And so many people in this church treated our kids that way. Going to recitals, sitting through Little League games, out of care for and love for these kids. And now our daughter and son-in-law do that in their church. They, They go and watch other kids' games. But they do this not because of us, their parents. It's not. It's not because of anything we have taught them, but it's what you did for them. It just seems natural to them to do this because so many in this church did it for them. And it played a key part in growing their faith, your love for them. Friend, you can do that for children in this church. It's profound, the impact you can have. There are also structured, very valuable ways to serve in life of the church. We have children's ministry that happens during the nine o'clock service. It's a wonderful thing. The kids are always perfectly behaved. None of them ever cry. It's just like bliss at all times down there. Okay, it's not. Of course it's not. But it's a wonderful opportunity to serve in children's ministry. We also have a youth ministry that happens at 8 o'clock as well as every other Sunday evening with a group more broadly. And if you're a member of the church, so so only members can serve just for the sake of kind of best practices and and safety of the kids. But, But if you're a member, I would encourage you to think about serving in the children's ministry or the youth ministry. You can do it sporadically or to the extent that you're able. But it's a valuable thing to serve them. But I'd also say you will be helped by serving. Because if the call is to be like a child, how do you learn to be like a child? Be around kids. And most of you in your regular life perhaps are not around children. And so so you may be terrified, we'll help you. But if you're there and you see, what does childlike humility look like? What does the audacious faith of a child look like? You listen to them pray, it will encourage you to pray with greater boldness. So I'd encourage you to consider serving in those areas. For some of you who are parents or you aspire to be parents, obviously the first responsibility is given to parents to invest in, sow seeds of the gospel in the lives of your children. So I just encourage you, it's, it's valuable, important work as you know. And so, so seek to cultivate rhythms in your family of being around the word together, praying together. Early days, it'll be a very short time with the kids. And as they get older, it can expand. And the fact is, if you're like us, you'll, you'll try and you'll fail. But then get up and try again. And you'll make it two or three days and then you'll fail. But then get up and try again. And through that sowing of seeds, God will bring a harvest by his will. We pray in the future in the lives of those children. Let me also encourage you, parents, from the very earliest days, build into your children's lives the centrality of the local church. Just say, that's just what our family does. 
We gather with God's people. And if you just build that in, when they get older, they won't try to opt out because it's not even an option that's ever been considered in the family. That's just what we do. And and as they get older, it will get harder because there will be activities on Sunday morning. There are all sorts of activities that kids can do, and you'll have to face choices in that. Let me encourage you one other area, parents. I I know uh, I'll I'll come across as like a, a grumpy old man on this topic. But we actually did have children. And years ago, they were young children. There's a temptation when you have younger children because you want your kids to sleep, which is good, and you want to sleep, which is good. But to begin to think, you know, we've got to keep our kids on this schedule or else everything will fall apart. And it leads to parents kind of disconnecting from other activities, being able to be with other people, being able to be a part of a community group. And for now, I commend the schedule when possible. But I would also say, We're suddenly teaching our kid that everything is about them. But if you instead say, this is just what our family does. So so, yeah, one night a week, we do stay out later for a community group, let's say. And and it does impact all of us, but that's just what we do as a family. I think you'll find that children are more pliable than we think they are. But also, you need that community as well. And so if you pull away from it, I, I think you will miss out. End of rant by grumpy old man. May we be a church that in every way loves and serves children. That's what we want to be. The, the welcomes children says, do not hinder them. So, so let's embrace a childlike faith and humility ourselves. But sadly, many will reject this way, which leads us to second, refusing the kingdom. We see refusing the kingdom in verses 16 through 22, where we see this young man comes to Jesus and he asks a very important question. Teacher, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? It's a profound question. Is there eternal life? And if there is, how would I enter into it? It would be a very important question for every person to consider. So I wonder if you've ever considered that question. What does it take to have this eternal life? But the young man here isn't only asking how, but he asks what he must do to have it And the impression we have is that he's self-assured enough to believe whatever Jesus says, he can do it. He doesn't seem to be concerned whether he could do it or not. So just tell me what it is. I'll do it so I can have eternal life. It becomes quickly obvious that this man is far from the childlike faith and humility that Jesus had just called us to. So Jesus first responds to the young man by saying, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. The young man responds, verse 18, well, which ones? So Jesus answers, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man boldly responds, verse 20, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? He basically says, I'm doing all these. I have these covered. And notice Jesus' response. Jesus doesn't respond to him by saying, no, you haven't. He doesn't say, well, no, you're a liar. Jesus doesn't actually argue with his claim that he was already doing these things. Now, of course, Jesus had not cited all the commandments here. He'd cited in order the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, the fifth, and then given the call to love your neighbor as yourself. But notice Jesus continues, verse 21. If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give it to the poor, 
and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So Jesus says to the young man, there's, there's one more thing you need to do. Sell all you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me. So in this interaction, Jesus was willing to, to walk the line of reasoning with this man. Not because it would ever be possible for him to keep all the commandments. He couldn't, nor that any of us could and thus earn salvation. No one can do that. But the central call to all is always, come, follow me. We've seen that across the gospel. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. But in order to follow Jesus, I must leave behind if I'm following something else. So Jesus knows this young man, and this young man is following something else. Wealth, possessions. Jesus knows this man. He cares about him at the level of his heart. So that's why he calls him, sell it and give it away so that you could come and know me. And notice the man's response. He was crushed. He went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. He was wealthy. Now, why did Jesus say this? Sell it all, come and follow me. It's because Jesus came to provide salvation as a free gift to any and all who receive it. And the way it is received is by repenting, turning away from following lesser things and turning to follow him by faith. It's always repent and believe, repent and follow Jesus. And Jesus knew this young man's heart that, that before Jesus could be king of this young man's life, he would have to dethrone something else that was functionally the king, which was his wealth, his possessions. So Jesus knew this young man had another God, an idol of his heart. In order to know and follow Jesus, he would have to set aside this idol. The selling of all would finally force this man away from self-reliance to have childlike trust, humility before Jesus. Sadly, the young man wouldn't do it. And because of that, he rejected Jesus and his kingdom. That's interesting. The young man was very willing to obey in a number of areas of life. As Jesus affirmed, there were many of the commandments he was keeping, so he was willing to obey where those commands did not threaten his functional God or his idol. In fact, that was relatively easy for him to keep those commandments. And the fact is, we're often like that as well. Some of the teachings of Jesus, where they don't threaten what we want to do, we say, oh, I'm really godly in this area and that area. But some of the calls of Jesus come closer to the heart, to the center of what we're really trusting in. And then it is so hard for us, like the young man. So friend, I wonder, what, what, what are you truly trusting in? What are your hopes grounded in? You might think about it this way. What, what do you desire most of all in life? Or what do you imagine would, would really finally give meaning to life if you obtained it? Or you might discover it by, by looking at it from the kind of the backside. What do you most fear losing in life? And by those questions and similar ones, we can, we can sort of press in and say, what, what is it I'm really trusting in? What, what functionally is 
God for me. The sobering reality is this young man outwardly would have appeared to be the perfect disciple. He's young, wealthy, outwardly upright. I mean, he's keeping all these commandments. So if you're building a church, you would think that's the guy we want. And yet sadly, though outwardly he looks upright, his heart is far from God. So this should raise some questions for each of us if if we're aware of our own hearts, which leads us to third, entering the kingdom. Entering the kingdom in verses 23 to 26. Look at Jesus' response. The man is sad, verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will the rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus sounds this warning. It's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Then he goes even further. It's easier, he says, for a camel, the largest animal in the region of the time, to go through the tiniest opening, the opening in a needle. So it's easier for that to happen than for a rich man to be saved, to enter the kingdom. We're thinking about this among the staff this week because, you know, most of us don't hang out with camels, so we're not really, like, how big is a camel? compared to a needle. So what would be some, you know, comparisons we might use today? So someone suggested, I think, helpfully, you know, it'd be like the, the moving truck trying to get through the bridge on Storo Drive, right? We've all seen that every fall, you know, trucks get stuck, they're too big, they can't fit, but some new person in the city doesn't read the sign and they drive down there and it gets stuck. It's impossible for the truck to get through. And yet that story is not actually exaggerated enough compared to what Jesus said. So it'd be more like, a cruise ship trying to fit through a bridge on Soro Drive. It's ridiculous. It's utterly impossible. There's no way it would fit. And that was Jesus' point here. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of an evil, which cannot happen. It's hard for the wealthy and the strong to admit they need Christ. It's hard for the powerful to become childlike. It's so easy for possessions to become a functional God, an idol. And many of the Jewish people of that day believed that wealth was a sign that God was blessing someone. So if there was a neighbor that had a lot, you would think, well, I, I don't know why, but God is really blessing them. So for Jesus to say, no, in fact, they're in greater danger, sort of, shook up his disciples. They couldn't understand. And then they asked the question, well, then then who can be saved? That was Jesus saying that money is inherently evil. No. But we are told that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. If you want to read more on that this week, I would commend to you 1 Timothy chapter 6. Just really helpful. It speaks about contentment and the dangers of money. Now, is money potentially dangerous? Yes, it is potentially dangerous. But can a person be wealthy and follow Jesus? Yes. We see across the scriptures, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, Joseph of Arimathea, all of them wealthy. See this woman named Lydia in Philippi, a wealthy woman whose home, it seems, becomes the launching point of the church in Philippi. All those and more who are wealthy, So it's possible to 
be far from God and have wealth and to follow God faithfully with wealth. So it's not so simple because we tend to think, just tell me yes or no. But the kingdom of Jesus won't allow us such simple answers. Are all Christians to sell everything? No. We can be an idolater, we can be envious, whether we're rich or poor. I would say, though, if your first thought in reading this is to imagine all the qualifications why this doesn't apply to us, we're probably on dangerous ground. It's like, oh, no, no, this, there's no way I would need to give away any of my resources because of this, this, and this. I mean, our natural default is going to be to figure out why we are the exception and we should keep what we have. The disciples are shocked. They say, well, then who can be saved? Because they understand Jesus' point. A camel cannot. It could never go through the eye of a needle. And that's why Jesus uses that illustration. So Jesus responds, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It's impossible for the wealthy to be saved apart from God. Of course, that's true of all people. That's true of salvation for any and all. No one can be saved apart from the gracious work of God. But all things are possible. Even salvation of the former idolater, the one overcome with greed, can be saved through Christ. And friends, that is good news. The glorious good news is that God does the impossible in salvation. He saves the rich and the poor. Now, this young man's idol was money and possessions. That was his functional God. But what about for you? What is your functional God today? Where do you find your importance, your significance, your hope? Is it in financial resources, possessions, security they might bring? You might say, look, I'm a poor college student. I mean, I'm in negative with my debt right now. It can still be there. Even the aspiration of future wealth can be just as dangerous, even if you don't possess it yet. Or is the, the idol, the functional God, achievement, success on the campus, in the workplace? Is it a relationship, a certain relationship that you desire or hope for? What are you clinging to today? And is it possible you're clinging to one of these instead of to Christ? Christ calls us to leave those and turn to him. So maybe if you get lunch today with some following the service, that might be a worthwhile conversation. You might discuss, you know, what are some of the more common temptations in the world you live in right now? Other things we might elevate above God. And then if you really want to get personal, share the one that's tempting to you the more tempting idol or functional God for you. The young man asked the good question, what must I do to have eternal life? If you're not a Christian, we're glad that you'd be willing to join us today. And the most important news is not what we do or have done, but it is what Jesus Christ has done. That's the story of Christianity. Not what we do to earn, to gain our way in, but what Christ has done. For he, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was rich and willingly became poor 
taking on flesh, walking this earth, living a perfect, sinless life, enduring the, the difficulties of humanity. But eventually going to the cross that through his death and resurrection in our place, he would pay for our envy and for our greed, for our pride, for our sinful anger, to pay for all of our sins. That through his death and resurrection, he would secure this free and full pardon. The forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, new life in Christ, adoption into God's own family, and all of this a gift. It can only be received. It cannot be earned. But it's held out to any and all who would receive it by faith, to all who would receive it as a child. As a friend, if you're new to Christianity, we would love for you to explore this more. If you'd like to know more today, I'll be at the door following the service. I'd love to chat with you. If you came with a friend or another student, they would love to tell you as well. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he made the impossible salvation possible. Now, the life of following Jesus in this world is costly, though. And it's reasonable to wonder, is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus on this costly path? That brings us to fourth, experiencing the kingdom. Experiencing the kingdom in verses 27 to 30. In response to what Jesus has said, so the young man has just walked away sorrowful. Jesus said, sell it all, follow me. The young man walks away sorrowful. Look at, G look at Peter's words, verse 27. I think they're just really honest, authentic, searching words. He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? It's a good question. The young man wouldn't leave everything Peter and the other disciples had. They left it all and followed Jesus. Instead of like the kingdom looking better, the kingdom's looking worse and worse. Jesus is telling them, I'm headed to the cross. They're going to kill me. So the hill seems to be going down further and further. So, so Peter's wondering, what about us? We left it all. What will we have for leaving it all? Jesus answers specifically for the apostles. Verse 28, he says, I say to you in the new world, so in the new heavens and the new earth, when the Son of Man, referring to himself, sits on his throne, the apostles will have a role in judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So that was unique to the apostles. But then he goes on, look at verse 29. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many of us, who are, many who are first will be last and the last first. So Jesus says that the one who leaves possessions and or relationships behind for the sake of Christ's gospel, for the sake of his name, will receive much more now in Jesus' kingdom and in the life to come. So it is true, life in the kingdom of God is costly. It will cost you much to follow Jesus and he has promised to give you more more in this life and the life to come. Christ himself will provide for that lack. He himself will be more than sufficient for us. And he promises that he will often in this life provide family from among the people of God for those who've left behind family and friends. And he will provide financial resources for those who radically, generously give it away for the sake of the kingdom. 
There's a promise, verse 30, many who are first will be last. Last, first. We'll look more at that next week. So you might wonder at times, how do people leave behind family and friends and homes and safety and security to go across oceans to other nations, risking their lives to tell other people about Jesus, where it cost them everything and everyone. How do people do that? Why do people do it? Because of this promise of Jesus. That's how it can be done. How does one of our own Korah go to a different part of the world for the sake of his name? Because of this. Jesus has promised her and to all He'll ride in this life. Friend, if some of you were to be called to go to the nations, so that some who have never heard might hear, it will cost you much, even everything. Friend, hear Jesus. He will give you more in this life. He will provide family through the church there, however small believers there are there. Might be two, might be four, who knows where you are. Friends, it is a worthwhile thing. Jesus will be faithful to his promise. God's people have found that to be true throughout the centuries. And if you go, if he sends you, he will show himself to be faithful in your life as well. Now, on a much, much smaller scale, my friend and I moved here 22 years ago to another part of the country, leaving behind all family, all friends, for the sake of the mission of Jesus, to the two-year-old daughter, and we moved here. That's no comparison to relocating to another culture, another country. Sometimes it felt like we were moving to another country when we moved to Boston, but it was no sacrifice in that way. But we did leave behind family, friends, a house with a yard, all those things. But we can say without qualification, Jesus has been faithful to this for us. And because we have no family here, God provided family in particular for our children. There were no grandparents here for their birthday parties, no, no cousins here for Thanksgiving, but he provided that through the church, through you, through people in this church who were cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents to our kids. So we would say after these years, we didn't lose anything. We actually gained. We gained much as Jesus showed himself to be faithful to us through Some of you have made choices to stay here in Boston or to stay in closer to the city for the sake of the mission. It may have been that you thought you'd be in Boston for a couple of years and move on, or you're you're here local, but you always imagine you'd move a little bit further out into the suburbs. So you could leave. You could have left to be closer to family, perhaps, or to have a house Instead of an apartment, a yard with grass, multiple parking spaces, just for, even if you don't have a car, the life of ease for a whole lot less money, a decision that would make sense by every standard. Some of you have chosen to stay for the sake of the mission. You've given up much for the sake of the gospel. And friends, in the same way, Jesus knows and he sees and he is and will be faithful in that. 
Now, many of you, most in Boston, move on. Don't feel any guilt about that when the time comes to go. But I would say it's worth considering, might there be a time in your life where finally you say, as best I can tell, here's a place I could put down roots. So find a local church, find a job that could keep you there, and just stay there. And then do this. Sacrifice. Give up much for the sake of the kingdom there. And trust that Jesus will be faithful to you as well. Friends, this is God's design, that God gives us in much greater measure than what is given up for his gospel. In our passage today, we see a dramatic contrast across. In the middle, we have this rich young man seems to have it all, but who misses the kingdom, rejects the kingdom. But at the beginning, we see the call the kingdom is received to those who are willing to like Christ, who will look to Jesus by. And at the end, like, here's the life that's worth living. Give up, leave behind, sacrifice, and know true life. And to walk in step with our culture, it would be the life of the rich young man. That's the life that makes sense in our world. You'll fit right in if you pursue that. But Jesus is saying there's another way. And this is the way that's true life. The life that's flourishing is found there. Childlike, humble, faithful, sacrificial life. Jesus has come bringing his kingdom. So have you entered the kingdom by faith? And if you have, are you living for that kingdom? Let's pray that we would do that together as a church for the glory of our King.